Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Uh, was up in Seattle in that area. Uh, great people as far as the church is concerned. Great remnant people that drove in there to see us. Uh, but I will say this. Seattle is a very spiritually dark place. That place is ungodly. Um, again, there's remnant believers and they were all great. But man, the people around that area, man, occultic witch, witch, witchcraft is heavy. Uh, Satanism is heavy. Um, and I think I was tearing, telling Terry on Monday on the radio show that uh, the people up there have a certain look. Um, not the Christians. The Christians just look normal, okay? The Christians look normal, okay? So the people at the church, at the conference, they all look great. They look like us and just normal human beings, right? But when you see, you go out and you look in the airport and, and you look at what's around, you start realizing that, hey, there's something wrong with the people and the way they present themselves. And the way they present themselves is disheveled. They look completely disheveled. Hair's not combed. It's like they rolled out of bed, you know. Hey, I put on my sweats and my, uh, I put on my, uh, slippers and here I am. I'm knowing, I know I'm going to a fancy restaurant to eat, but you just have to take me how I am. You know, that kind of mentality. And Terry and I were talking about, it's kind of like antisocial behavior. You know, when you don't pr- present yourself, we're not saying that everyone has to look 21. That's not what we're saying is, People that are a part of decent society, if you're going to be a part of decent society, you have to like present yourself for what that environment requires. When you see people not presenting themselves appropriately in the environment they're in, it tells me that something's going on mentally upstairs. There's something here. It's antisocial behavior. It's dep- a sign of depression. It's a sign of all kinds of stuff that, you know, uh, I just give up. Or it's another sign of demonic activity. Because when you look at demonic activity in the life of a person, they will come off as disheveled. Uh, they look thrashed. Um, for goodness sakes, the demoniac, I'm not saying anyone was running around naked, but um, it, the demoniac, the, the demoniac at uh, the Gadarene, when Jesus confronted him, he was naked running around the, the, the tombs, right? They spend a, pl- they spend time in darkness and, in dreary places and stuff like that. And so I don't know. I've been to Oregon. I've been to uh, now Washington state. And, um, the minute I landed, I felt oh, an oppression there. There's, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be hyper spiritual about anything, but you land and I'm like, okay, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. And, uh, you know, pray for a lot of those believers up there. They're good remnant believers, obviously, but they're few and far between, just like here in California. But there is some major, major demonic oppression in that area. And there's different places around. There just seems to be in the United States, there's different pockets of this all around the nation. And uh, you go into certain areas. I, I know a lot of people will go into New Mexico and have that same feeling because of all the occultic and... Uh, new age types of stuff that is running and the Indian stuff that's running. I didn't realize up there in, in the Washington how much Indian stuff is up there, it, tribes and things of that nature and reservations. And that brings a certain amount of animism into 
the area. So I was talking to a gal who worked in a Indian reservation and she'd have to go in and out every day. And she would, she would say that she goes, Brandon, the minute I crossed the border into Indian reservation, I felt there was an evil presence or an oppression there. And then I would work in one of their offices and she, she said there was times where uh, we'd have doors slam open, slam shut. She would go to close it and then it would close for itself and then it would open for herself. And so she, I said, well, a lot of times these tribes are involved in animism and that's obviously demonic activity. She says, I saw it full well. And she says, I could tell the minute I left that reservation versus when I, when I was on it, the difference. There was a major difference. So I said, yeah, that's, that's part of it, man. So, um, she says, what do I do? I said, well, get out of the environment. Um, don't work there. I mean, if you're okay with doors, having paranormal activity, opening doors and shutting doors and all that, then fine, knock yourself out. Uh, live with poltergeists, uh, you know, um, phenomenon. But, uh, if you don't want to be around it, you need to find another job and get out of there. So uh, anyway, interesting thing, um, seeing other parts of the country, but um, they're having the same problem we are. There's few and far between churches giving the truth out anymore. Their churches are woke. Their churches are uh, missing in action. They're just not there anymore. So these poor people, a lot of them drove like six hours to be there. And and then I said, where are you from? They'll tell me where they're from. And I said, is there a good church there? No, no. So, so a lot of them are, you know, watch us and the other guys that, that are on there. So it was, it's interesting. But since we're talking about, you know, Satan's work and we're talking about warfare, there seems to be warfare in heavier places in the United States than normal. I, I know California is crazy, right? If you go in San Francisco, LA, you can feel it. Um, and that's how I feel. I don't feel that way in Bakersfield, but I definitely feel it when I land in Seattle or when I was in Portland. Uh, there's something not right. You know, you just, you know. Anyway, um, let's start into our, uh, our continued uh, discussion on Satan's work in relationship to Israel. We went through a lot of that with, uh, about Israel last week. So here's what I want to do. Uh, we'll go through these bullet points. So the first thing we have to understand um, is that Satan is Israel's adversary. And we talked about how he's adversarial all the way to the very end, okay? But this answers the question of why so many people are anti-Semitic. Because it's satanically driven. Because it doesn't make any sense many times. So when you understand First Chronicles, Zechariah 3, and the other preceding passages, then you know that when someone has this thing in their spirit about a, a just irrational hatred for Jews, it's driven by Satanism. And so something in that person's life has allowed Satan to influence them towards that. Okay? So we understand that. Right now, what's happening is the churches are starting to become anti-Semitic. Now, the church is becoming a lot of things, as you know. The church is becoming woke and pro-LGBT, pro-transgender, pro-everything, right? Uh, every ungodly thing you can name, the churches are going for. But the interesting thing about the churches as well on the other issue of Israel is they're turning on Israel, okay? And the new anti-Semitism in the church is called anti-Zionism, 
Okay? So the church is not going to, the people, these pulpits and pastors and churches never come out and say, oh, we hate the Jews. They're not going to say that. They're going to say this, that Israel doesn't have a right to her land and that Israel should create a two-state solution. That right there goes against the Abrahamic covenant and that out of their mouth is satanic. To offer land to any other person other than a Jew is going against the Abrahamic covenant and specifically the land covenant that is birthed out of the Abrahamic covenant. And so churches now, you will see this form of anti-Semitism. Now, the other form of anti-Semitism with Israel is understanding this. You don't get a neutral position with Israel, okay, on any issue. There is no neutrality on biblical marriage, right? There's no neutrality on... um whatever, stealing, right? There's no neutrality. There's no place you can be. Either you're stealing or you're not. It's wrong or it's, or you're, you know, you're okay if you're not stealing. On Israel, you don't get a middle ground. You do not get to pick, well, I'm just going to be neutral on this. You either are for or you're against. That's it. And that's why this dividing line that's going on in the church is so pronounced now and why you are finding so few churches. The church I was up in Seattle, God bless them. They're pro-Israel. Last weekend was Israel's 74th birthday, right? So at least that church was celebrating that, understood it, and um, was commemorating that. But I want you to think about this. In the general proximity around here in Kern County, how many churches are talking about Israel? Okay. Just ask your Christian friends that go to these churches, ask them, when is the last time your church talked about the nation of Israel? You'll hear crickets. Crickets. I can guarantee you that. Okay. So let me ask you this. In the satanic realm, in the spiritual realm, like I'm saying, on all the issues, God says this is right. Satan will say that's wrong, right? He just does the reverse, okay? Therefore, there's no middle ground, okay? So when God says, I'm for Israel, I'm going to use her in the future, and all Israel will be saved, that leaves no room, especially the Abrahamic covenant, leaves no room to say, gee, I don't know. Or you don't get the opportunity to say, well, the Abrahamic covenant was hyperbole. Or the Abrahamic covenant is uh, null and void because of Israel's disobedience. Nope, it's a unilateral covenant forever. And that means that God will settle the conditions and fulfill the conditions for it, not based on what Israel does. And so when you hear things like that, I'm telling you, they might be nice people, but in their heart, something's going on about Israel. They have left an opening for, for Satan to influence him in, in that area. So here's my thing. If you do not understand Israelology in the Bible, that will be the very ground that Satan will take from you to make you anti-Semitic or at least, at minimum, make you anti-land and make you uh, go with the narrative that Israel is an apartheid state and there should be a two-state solution. If you give that over. But I know you, you understand Israelology. And that's what we talk about here a lot. So that ground, since you know it, will not be taken from you. It's your 
it's our ignorance that is taken from us. If we don't know a particular subject in the Bible, then that's the ground Satan will take on us and then influence through that direction. And that's what's happening in the local churches. And it's going to be more of a dividing line. You wait. Folks, if they're going, if the church is predicted to spiritualize the eating of, or sorry, the not eating of meat, if they're going to go that far, according to Paul, when he told Timothy that, that they're going to forbid you to eat meat, the church will. Don't you think they're going to go even further with Israel? Of course they will. And like we talked about, if Israel is going to come back in the land via persecution like we have seen in the rest of the world, then at some point the churches are going to turn on Israel too and actually be hostile towards her. Blame the Israel, I don't know, who, what, 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 they, they'll blame anything on Israel. They'll blame the Jews for the digital currency. They'll blame the Jews for the inflation. They'll blame the Jews for the lack of food. They'll blame the Jews for the lack of, of uh, supply chain. All that stuff. They're just going to be a scapegoat. That's how they've always been. So what I'm telling you right now is <clears throat> you're learning the satanic tact. So therefore, you are going to have to be very vocal in your support for Israel in the days ahead. People are going to need to know where you stand because there's no wiggle room there. And, and if you want that blessing, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. That's an Abrahamic blessing to anyone who treats the Jews negatively or positively. If you want to be in the place of blessing, you better support Israel. And that's it. Support, and, and, and what do you mean? Support the government? No. No, it doesn't say anything in the Abrahamic covenant about supporting the government. The government right now of Israel is liberal and leftist, and eventually the government of Israel makes a deal with the devil. So that's what you, you're no, you don't support that, right? What do you support? I support the plan and purposes of God for the nation of Israel, and I support the Jewish people. And I support their right to the land. That's it. That's what the Abrahamic covenant provides. And that's what you have to support. Very clear, very easy. But we don't, we don't support them jabbing their country. Remember what the, they're on the, like their fourth booster? We don't support that. Aren't they? Right? I think it's on their fourth booster. We don't support that. So anyway, that's kind of the, how you have to parse that out a little bit. The second thing that he will do to Israel is accuse them before God. And you see this, this passage in, in Zechariah 3, where Satan is actually standing, and the representative is the high priest there in Zechariah 3, and it's a picture of Satan accusing him. Um, and I think the high priest is Joshua at the time, I believe. Yeah, in Zechariah. That's post-exilic uh, post uh, Zechariah. Anyway, <clears throat> what is this idea about accusing them? Well, it's the same concept of when you see in the New Testament when Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, right? The accuser of believers. So what does he accuse us of? He accuses us of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. And what does he want God to do about that? He wants God to enact his justice to, to discipline us and penalize us for unconfessed and unrepentant sin, which God will do if it remains in that status. Well, the same is true about Israel. When Israel doesn't obey, then Satan accuses her and wants God to force his hand upon Israel for what they did or what they are currently doing. And, and the great promises of, 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 
of God is that Israel will one day be redeemed and the accusing will stop. But right now, Israel is in the accusing state, okay? And right now, unfortunately, because they're in the accusing state that the majority of Israel doesn't believe in the Messiah, there is a remnant, obviously, Paul says there's always a remnant believes in the Messiah, and that remnant will be taken in the, the rapture uh, prior prior uh, to the tribulation. But the unbelieving Jews represent disobedience currently speaking. Okay? And because of that, the accuser of the Israel is accusing God, uh, sorry, accusing them to God. Now, what is God's solution to get them out of their unrepentance and not willing to confess Jacob's trouble? Okay? And so, it, it, the, the calling of Israel back out of the nations, there's two callings, one out in, one out of the nation in unbelief, and the other one is out of the nations in belief, and that's from the scattering of the Antichrist of them at the midpoint. So what you have witnessed in 1948 is the prophecy of being ingathered, uh, in unbelief, and then the dry bones of, of Ezekiel 37 starting to happen where they, they reconstitute as a nation in stages. And the last stage is when they get the breath of life in them. That will happen in the tribulation. Okay, so because of this, return to unbelief. If you study the prophets, they will tag on to this. And this is Ezekiel and other Isaiah and other passages about their return. Is Especially Ezekiel will say they are returning in unbelief uh, out of judgment for judgment. That's what the prophets will say about this first return. Okay? So, they're, what do you mean coming out of judgment? Well, the scattering happened, obviously, because of the rejection of the Messiah. And the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. The, and the dispersion happened and by 136 after Bar Kopa's rebellion. There, there were a lot of them were scattered. Okay. So, the prophets predict that when they return, they return in unbelief. They return out of judgment, the scattering that happened, but they return for judgment. And that's pretty hard to un not understand, but realize that they're going into the tribulation and Daniel chapter 12 explains why. Daniel chapter 12 says, for the purpose of breaking the power of the people. Now, what is this? What is the breaking of the power of Israel? Because that's what Daniel chapter 12 is referring to. The tribulation is, Jacob's trouble is for breaking their power. What is that? Well, let me explain a few things. You have to piece in a few other things to understand this. <clears throat> in the Gog of Magog war, it says that Israel will be living securely on, in unwalled villages, okay? So the conditions right now in Israel actually present itself to fulfill that. Now, yes, Israel has a wall, but it, that's only like uh, 5% of its boundaries. It's nothing, you know? So technically speaking, 95% of Israel is unwalled right now. But the key, the key term in the Hebrew in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is 
they live securely, it's the Hebrew word betchak, betchak. And um, many people will say, well, this is the peace that Antichrist gives them. No, you can't translate it like that. The betchak, the definition of betchak means that Israel is militarily secure on their own power. They're not getting some other power to help them based on what they can do militarily. It has given them a batak, a militarily secure peace. Okay. Not that they're at peace with anyone else. Okay. Not, it's not shalom. Shalom's a whole different ball game. It's batak, militarily secure. So that if something happens with Iran, they're going to attack Iran. Okay, they'll take care of business. They'll fight. That's what it means to be batak. That condition now is available now for prophecy. They're in that condition right now. That's why we can say uh, uh, the the Gog of Magog is a possible tr- uh, pre-tribulational event that could happen right before us, because they have that condition met. Okay, but it's Israel's military security, the batak that gives them the power to not ascribe that to God, but to ascribe it to themselves. And one of the key flaws that Israel would always make is that they took the blessings of God and they, instead of giving him praise for it, would put it on themselves and think they're a self-made man or a self-made country, that they're so smart, they're this, that they made themselves. That's all through the Old Testament, okay? They would take the blessings and say, we did this, okay? That's the problem. That's the problem today, okay? You look at 1948, you look at 1967, the Six-Day War, you look at Yom Kippur. Without God's intervention, they wouldn't have won. They were literally losing in 1973. Had it not been for Nixon's mom who was inspired of God to tell him one day when you grow up, you need to do something to save the Jews. And he did, even though he was an anti-Semite, okay? That was God's intervention. Six-day war, miracles all over the place. God's intervention, 1948, no way. They were like Nehemiah, sword in one hand, shovel in another. No way they should have won it, but they did. That's God's intervention. So what God has been trying to do is say, wake up, it's me doing this. To get them to understand that God is providing and not only providing materially, but has provided spiritually the Messiah already. And the first thing that needs to happen is he has to break their security on their military and their wealth. Because here's the simple point in all spiritual battle. It is not until you are broken and humiliated and humbled and know your spiritual poverty, then you will turn to God. But until then, he has to break that stubborn pride inside of you. And that's what he's doing to the nation of Israel right now. He's going to have to break their pride. I mean, for goodness sakes, we're going to go to Israel uh, in November. When you get on the ground, it's amazing. They have four agricultural areas 
which allows them to grow every piece of vegetable or fruit on this planet because they have four agricultural zones. It truly is the land of milk and honey because they can grow anything. It's amazing. And the fact is some of the area that they grow things is lower than uh, the sea level, which means the plants, the, uh, the fruit, and the vegetables don't have any radiation hitting them. So it just thrives. So like some of their dates are the best dates in the world. But the key is, are, are they going to say that's because of our ingenuity? Or are they going to say, no, that's the blessing of God? You see how that goes? It's an easy thing. And same thing with you on your personal life. If you think you're a self-made woman or a self-made man, and I got here and I worked really hard, and that's true, you probably did work really hard, but you got here and, dude, Daniel says that he is the one who actually allows you to even breathe. So, in that sense, there are no self-made people at all, okay? If he's the one controlling the air coming in and out of your lungs, uh, okay, lights, lights out, he's... He wins, obviously, right? We couldn't do anything without him. Yes, there's a certain amount of responsibility we're talking about, but this is where people have to get broken. And and that's what the accuser is choosing him, and God is going to allow this to where he breaks the power of Israel, Daniel chapter 12. Once they are broken, they will plead for Messiah. And that's the spiritual condition. Now, here's the thing. Spiritual poverty and the awareness of spiritual poverty must precede the person wanting help, okay? You're not going to ask for help unless you realize that you can't do it. That's the thing, how it works, even in our own personal lives. If you think, I got this one, you're out of your mind. Okay, you're just out of your mind. You're not going to overcome. Well, I'll just, Brandon, I'll give it my old college try. And I know if I try really, really hard and put a lot of effort into this, I know I can overcome X, Y, and Z. You're going to fail. You're just going to fail. You don't have enough willpower in you to last maybe a couple days in that. And something will come along and it will weaken you and then you can't, you can't do it. So the idea is the only way to survive spiritually is you must constantly be told through scriptures and yourself, I, I can't do this. I need help. And I need help from the Lord. I am spiritually poor. I can't overcome this on my own. And if you constantly have that idea, it puts you in a state of humbleness, which that's where the Lord will help you. He says, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the proud. Okay. So you're not going to get any help spiritually unless you drop the pride. And that's the issue with Israel right now as a nation. You can look at Israel as a corporate nation, but bring it down to the individual level. They're going to get hung. We love Israel, right? We want them all to be saved. But you know the rest of the story. They're not. A lot of them are not. And they're going to go full-blown into a covenant with the Antichrist. And, and, and so it's a sad deal on our part to watch it. That's why we try to get the gospel out to many, as many Jews as possible, get them saved. Because what's waiting them is what is, Satan is accusing them of disobedience to the Messiah. And God says, I know. That's why I have the seven year tribulation of Jacob's trouble. And that's what, where I'm going to pour out my wrath. And so there's where the accusing comes from. Now w- with us, like I, I think we've talked about, 
Satan will accuse you day and night before the throne. Of what? Unconfessed, unrepentant sin. That's why this is the key to spiritual your walk is you must constantly confess um, known sin and repent of it. If you don't, a foothold is gained, the accusation will go against you, and a foothold is gained, and that will be the area in which you are controlled by the demonic. So right now, what is the foothold in Israel? Okay, We talked about their military. We talked about their uh, their uh, uh, wealth. They're, they're inventing things like there's no tomorrow. More Nobel Prizes come out of Israel than any other nation in the world. Uh, most of your medications are coming from Israel. Our agriculture, our drip system is based on Israel's ingenuity. It's not based on us. We got the idea from Israel because they have water problems there. So they invented the drip system. And, 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 and so a lot of inventions are coming out. You, you who are older, who have had colonoscopies, okay, you know how bad those are. Okay, yeah, I do too. Not good, not fun. Israel has invented a, a, a thing, a camera you can swallow. And so instead of having a colonoscopy, they invented this little camera and it takes thousands of pictures through your digestive tract. And all they have to do is get that thing and they don't need to do a colonoscopy on you. You just need to swallow it. How easy would that be instead of a colonoscopy, right? Yikes. Yeah, and it probably, yeah, you're right. It won't get to America with that, within five years or not. So... Sorry, until until that happens. But a lot of a lot of their inventions are happening like that. Why? Because they're blessed of God. The blessed of God. That's that's them in unbelief, even blessed. That's why Paul says, "How much more will they bless the Gentiles if they're in in, in belief?" That's them in unbelief, right? Okay. So the other thing, then, the foothold in Israel right now that is causing them spiritual problems is the rabbis, okay? Israel's religion is the cult of the rabbis, okay? They are they are so off the mark, these rabbis, and they get like godlike status. It's almost a kind of a worship status. They don't, they don't worship them per se, but man, they're hyper-venerated. You go to Israel and you go to the Hasidic areas and you go to the Orthodox areas and you'll go into these stores. Some of these stores are just completely Jewish, but it's 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 um it's all kinds of portraits of rabbis and in posters and t-shirts of rabbis like it's their heroes and stuff like that and it's it's very hyperventilate it'd be much like the catholics having the saints right saint bartholomew saint joseph or whatever they have these rabbis and they're they're given in a very very exalted status um and so what's holding israel back right now is the rabbis and let me, let me further drill down a little bit more into Judaism. When they got exiled in Babylon, uh, and they came back in, after Babylon, came back into the land, one of the big issues that the rabbis told them at that point in time, um, not the rabbis of Jesus' day, the rabbis of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? Good, they were good guys, right? They were good teachers. And they said, man, this can never happen again. We talked about the defense around the Torah, right? But the other thing that came out of that was we have always had a propensity as a people group to rebel against authority. We rebelled against Moses. We rebelled against David. We rebelled against 
you know, any authority that God gave us, including the prophets, okay? So that was on their mind, and that was part of why they got exiled, right? So they're, they're thinking, okay, we're back in the land, we're never going to mess around with the Sabbath, and we're never going to rebel against authority ever again. But what's the problem with that? They swung the pendulum too far. Okay? And what happened by the time of Jesus' day, and even to this day, you will hear Jewish people say, well, if the rabbi doesn't say it, then I'm not believing it. And if this is true, why doesn't the rabbi tell us? And so they are hung with giving way too much authority to the rabbis, and they won't move off of that. Now, if you get Israel, My Glory, the magazine, some I don't know if some of you get that. It's a great magazine, Israel, My Glory. I highly recommend it. It comes from Friends of Israel. Um, and uh, we support Menno Kalisher in Jerusalem. He's the pastor from Friends of Israel. Anyway, his dad, V, used to witness to a lot of Orthodox and Hasidics right there in Jerusalem. And every time you read these articles by Zvi, he, he would get to, he would get to them the point saying, look, you know, look, for instance, look at Isaiah 53. Have you ever read Isaiah 53? And the, the, the yeshiva students who are under the rabbi's yoke would say, that's, that's not in the Bible. And he would be clearly showing them Isaiah 53. That's not in the Bible. That's from your Christian book. He goes, no. This is from your book. This is your Old Testament. And they go, the rabbis never showed us that. We must talk to the rabbi about this. And then, then we'd leave. And that's how it was in all the conversation that Zvi will ever show in these magazines is that they will stop and then just instead of thinking about it for themselves, go back to the rabbi. And so right now, currently, the rabbis hold it over them. They're basically... What we say in the church, the era of the Nicolaitanism, where you, you have pastors who lorded over their congregation, that's what's happening in Israel today. They lord it over their people. And it's happened in, in, in Jesus' day, right? The Pharisees controlled the narrative, right? Sadducees controlled the narrative. The religious leaders controlled the narrative. And so the poor people didn't know which way, what to believe, you know? So they're confused a lot of times. Even the disciples were confused. Why? Because of rabbinic teaching. So, this nonsense with the rabbis has to be broken. So, here's my question. How do you think God will break the cult of the rabbis in Israel? Do you have any hints from Scripture how he will do it? Okay, Antichrist turns against them. False prophet. Second coming breaks them. Tribulation breaks them. What specifically in the tribulation is going to break them? Ah, now we're on to something. It's the messengers God is sending to Israel to break the cult of the rabbi. Elijah will return. 
Remember I told you last week, the Italian prophet Malachi predicted Elijah's return before the tribulation, right? Before. He comes before the tribulation. And what if you read it to set the, set the hearts of the fathers towards the children and the children's hearts towards the father. The primary issue, you now here's the interesting thing about Elijah's ministry. He is to prepare for this Israel for the second coming. But how is he doing that? He says he turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the father. What is that? Turn the father's hearts to the children and the children's hearts to the fathers. Yeah. It's turning away from the rabbi to their family. Okay. And so when, when, when Elijah comes, as God had already always made it with the family, who is the head of the family? The father. He's returning the family back to its division that the rabbis have caused, spiritually speaking, okay? And yes, they're a very cohesive group. There's no doubt about it. They're very family-oriented. But the father of the house has no spiritual authority because he has submitted it to the rabbi, right? Like I said, I make an application to you guys. Who's the head of your home, right? It's got to be the, the, the dad, right? It's the male, the spiritual leadership. Okay? The spiritual leadership in Israel's family has been gutted and given over to the rabbis. So Israel, Elijah's part of his restoration is to bring the families back together and also mend the families from their problems. Now that's very interesting. Why would he, why would you do that? So we're gonna, we're gonna get the spiritual leadership back to the father and then we're going to mend the broken fences between the family members. Why? Why is it so important to have family stability in order to receive Christ? Why is that? Huh? Border? I, what's, I, I've had a hard time hearing. Order. Okay, so you got order. And when you have family stability for the children in that family, what does it lend itself Two, as far as spirituality for the children. The children grow up in a stable environment and stats over, over all the facts and evidence prove when a child grows up in a stable home with a mom and dad, the way God designed, that's the ideal, right? The child has a better chance to come to faith in Messiah than anything you could do for that child. You can give that child a bunch of money, but if he doesn't have a stable home, it's it, they have a least likely chance they will come to faith. Why? Because the family dysfunction is where they learn about God, and if it's dysfunctional, then God's dysfunctional to them. If the family's stable and they get a good picture of what God looks like through the mom and dad, then it gives them a better chance that that's how God's like. God's like my mom and dad, so therefore I can believe in him and trust him. But if God is like my dysfunctional father, and if God is like my dysfunctional mom, I don't want anything to do with God. And Elijah's job is to do that in the nation of Israel. That's how important the family is. It's the bedrock of society, but it's the bedrock of how people come to faith. Now, uh, again, that's a general principle. Please understand. 
That's a generality, okay? So yes, there's people that come from very dysfunctional homes and they get saved. I'm not talking about that. But in general, stability in a family makes it more conducive. So Elijah's job is to cut the rabbi off and then get the family functioning together again, okay? So that's why he comes pre-tribulational. He's got a lot of work to do, okay? Two witnesses are also on the ground as well, aren't they? Okay, and one of those witnesses, it could be Elijah, but it could be another person. But some of them say it's Moses, some of them say it's Enoch, some of them say it's Elijah. So maybe Elijah plays both parts, I don't know. Or maybe Elijah is a third character. And then you have the two witnesses that might be Enoch or Moses. Or, as some have said, maybe they're just two new Jewish prophets that act in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah. I don't know. We'll see. They do, uh, definitely one of them is doing Elijah miracles and the other one's doing Moses miracles. Okay. So there's debate. So you have at least three witnesses at that point that God is sending to Israel. What else does he send to Israel? Thank you. The 144,000 Jewish virgins who are like the apostle Paul and will scatter all through the planet, not only to witness to the, to Jews, uh, but to the Gentiles as well, but they are called the first fruits of Israel. And their job is to break the power of the rabbis. Remember what Paul did. You want to know what the 144,000, what did Paul do when he went to every new region? What was the first thing? Where was the first place Paul would go? The synagogue, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And he would go toe to toe with synagogue rulers, right? And debate with them and show them from the scriptures. What you guys are doing is wrong. This is the Messiah and here's who he is. Some believed and some didn't. Imagine 144,000 guys confronting every synagogue in Israel. Confronting every rabbi that's dispelling distruth about Jesus. And imagine Elijah and Moses being back on the ground saying, Israel, Yeshua of Nazareth is your Messiah. Pounds, pounds, and then you know what happens? It breaks them free of the rabbis. And then, by the middle of the tribulation, they go. Uh, the Antichrist goes on a hunt to kill all of them, and now they have been spiritually prepared because one of the things you have to do is break strongholds in people's minds in order for them to be more conducive to get saved. If they have a stronghold in their mind, according to the Apostle Paul, it will be an area where the devil will work to cause them unbelief. And you can have all kinds of strongholds in your life. Stronghold of a dysfunctional family, stronghold from being in a cult, a stronghold from just not believing correctly, right? And it stays in your head and it prevents you from believing correctly. And so the stronghold is the rabbi. And so you can see God's plan. He's going to break them militarily, right? Through Antichrist. Their wealth would be stolen by the Antichrist. And then their spirituality will, will be hit by the witnesses and, the, and Elijah, Moses, and Enoch, possibly. So what I want you to see is God will do whatever it takes to wake people up. Okay, and if two thirds of Israel is claimed by the by Antichrist and killed, that means two thirds of them who are allowed to be killed by the Antichrist didn't come to faith. 
So only one third of Israel makes it out of that and actually believes in the Messiah. And it's that one third that ends up being the remnant of Israel. And according to Isaiah, the remnant represents all of Israel at that point in time. It's an interchange because of that. And so the one third ends up being all Israel and the remnant at the same time. So whether Paul refers to them that all Israel will be saved, he's referring to the remnant of Israel, according to Isaiah. Isaiah makes both, uh, both, uh, designations to that group, if that makes sense. Okay. So in the breaking of strongholds, that's one of the key aspects, even in our own walk with the Lord. And strongholds have to do with things that we believe in our head, okay? That, that something we, we, we don't think correctly. We have a dysfunction in our thinking. We don't see or perceive reality correctly. And so that will cause us to, um, have a problem. Now, now I'm talking to believers right now. That's the audience. And so even a believer can have a stronghold. They can, they can have something that's affecting them that they can't just get over the hump on. They can't move past it. And it could be, uh, I don't know, unforgiveness or something like that, let's say. That, um, that's a stronghold in their head. They can't forgive somebody or they have anger and they can't seem to get released of the anger or whatever it might be. Or they're, they're worried and they can't get past the worry. Um, that becomes a stronghold in their head. Uh, the issue, uh, of people that worry, uh, has to do, um, with they don't trust God for the future. And so when they don't trust God for the future, then they look at their own capabilities in handling the future and they realize they don't have the necessary tools to handle the future. And so they don't believe God and they don't believe, uh, uh, sorry, God's provision or whatever, and they don't believe that they themselves can do it. So where does that leave them? I'm stuck and I'm scared. I don't know how to get out of this. And so it, it creates the anxiety in them. It creates um, confusion, depression, the whole nine yards. And I'm telling you, what's getting ready to happen to our economy, what's getting ready to happen with the digital currency, and next week as Biden hands over, literally hands over American sovereignty to the World Health Organization, which we'll talk about the next hour, that's going to freak people out. Because I can tell you what's going to happen. The World Health Organization is going to have the right to tell you what to do as far as healthcare. They'll have the right to declare a, plan, a pandemic. They'll have a right to shut down America, lockdowns, everything, because Biden is handing over next week our sovereignty to them. We're going to talk about the next hour. But what, why am I bringing that up? If you don't know that's coming, and if you don't spiritually prepare for that, it will send you into a tizzy of anxiety, worry, depression, possible suicide, okay? And so this is what's going to hit Americans, that that they're going to be rationing health care possibly. All kinds of weird stuff is going to come out of it because the UN will dictate to us what we do with our health. Now, that's the scariest thing that people can uh, uh, confront. Look what happened in the last two years. Fear of health was the biggest scare, right? It got people to do exactly what they wanted them to do. Well, another big scare is coming. And the scare is they can implement whatever they want. They can deem something a pandemic and and declare anything at that point because they have ultimate sovereignty at that point. America will not be able to say boo to them. So this is why 
If you have any strongholds that are causing you to be afraid, strongholds to be stressed or worried or whatever, you've got to work those strongholds out. You've got to get them out now before the big things hit so you can handle them. So you don't freak out or go into a suicide watch or anything like that because you're going to watch a lot of people commit suicide. That's what's going to happen. Look, the suicide skyrocketed and the the COVID shutdown, okay? All we have to do is take our clues from that. And if that if that caused massive suicide, what do you think when the, the government says this? We've switched to a digital currency, but because of hyperinflation, we're really having a tough time. So what we're going to do in your 401ks is we're going to take out already what you owe us if you later pull money out. So we're going to take what you owe us now out of your 401k. Okay? Or the hyperinflation drives your 401k into the dirt. What do you think people are going to do? You remember the, the, the depression in the 1930s? What did people do? Jump off of buildings? Remember that? They killed themselves. So strongholds are a big deal because they operate in keeping the person in, a, in fear and not seeing the reality. And so the, that's the rabbi for Israel. It's the rabbi that prevents Israel from seeing the Messiah. And so God has to do some extraction from that. So in a lot of ways, too, what your job is, is to wake people up. Your job is to talk to other believers and tell them what's coming down and how this plays a part in biblical prophecy. Now, they have a choice of whether they're going to shove their head in the sand and not pay attention to it. That's on them. But the issue is you have to warn them because you have a chance to help them mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Otherwise, I, I don't want to see other believers jump off the deep end and go crazy and flip out and go, you know, whatever, do whatever that harm themselves. That's, that's not what we want to see. So that's our job is to, to get those strongholds out of people's minds. Some of the strongholds, I'll tell you this, some of the stronghold is this. Um, it's called normalcy bias. Normalcy bias. And that's a stronghold in people's heads. And the, the, the normalcy bias prevents them from seeing What's really happening? Because in their mind, they're saying, well, it's just going to return back to normal. It's always been, there's been things like this before. It'll go back to normal. And it, this is no big deal. Brandon, I don't know what you're talking about. That's called normalcy bias. The, the person actually wants the reality to return back to normal. But the problem is the reality is not turning, returning back to normal. And so they keep the normalcy bias in their head. That's a stronghold. It keeps them from seeing things. And it's going to cause them to jump off the deep end when it does hit. Um, three, he wants to destroy every living Jew on the planet. That's his goal. In all of biblical history, from Pharaoh in Egypt to the Antichrist in Revelation 12, there's always been an assault to wipe every Jew off the planet. And I think we mentioned this last week, uh, why he wanted to wipe every Jew off before Messiah came. And now you understand why he's wanting to wipe off every Jew off the planet before Messiah comes the second time. And it's this. The second coming is predicated on Israel's calling out for Jesus to save them. Okay, so Jesus, I say they will come to faith in Jesus three days prior to the second coming. They won't know that, but they will, according to Hosea chapter six, and just read one verses one through six. And and so they call out, they they're saved, 
And then the second coming happens three days later. So I want you to follow the order. They get humbled. They get saved spiritually. And second, they're saved physically. Okay? It's always that order. Physical deliverance is preceded by spiritual deliverance. That's the principle. Okay? Now, let me parse that out and apply it in, in, in many different ways. This is why in Romans 10, it says, with the heart one believes and is saved, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And a lot of people misunderstand that passage and put the two together as if it's Hebrew parallelism, and it's not. Paul is saying two different things. He's saying, yes, with the heart, that's how you get saved. And with the mouth, you confess and are delivered physically. Okay? So the second point that Paul's making is he's given you the order of salutis as far as spiritual deliverance happens first and then physical deliverance happens second. So how do I know that that physical deliverance has to do with confession because it has to do with calling out, calling out the requirement of Israel to be physically saved is to say Hosanna, come, come save us. There's plenty of Psalms that talk about their, their thing, that uh, the things that they say, and they basically are calling out for him. You, you must physically call out for his help for physical deliverance, okay? With the heart you believe, which is different. This is Joel chapter 2, okay? And it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the blood into, uh, sorry, the moon into blood before the coming and great awesome day of the Lord. So what, what, what's the context here? It's the tribulation. Okay. Now listen to this. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved or delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be a deliverance. And the Lord has said among the remnant, whom the Lord called. So he's already speaking about the remnant of Israel. They're only a remnant if they believe, right? And so what, what, what Joel, that's where the term whoever calls on the name of the Lord comes from. Uh, it also, refer, even in Genesis, it'll say, and they began calling on the name of the Lord at that time. Okay. A lot of mis- people mistake that and say, well, that's a calling for salvation. It's not a calling for salvation. It is a call for physical deliverance. Okay, that's what Joel's referring to because he's referring to the tribulation and they need to be physically saved from the Antichrist uh, in context. So when Paul uses that term from Joel and he puts it in Romans uh, chapter 10, he's referring to physical deliverance. It's, It's not equated to believing in the heart and you're saved. It's referring to physical deliverance. Okay. So Israel must be saved first spiritually according to Hosea 6, and then physically saved Joel chapter 2. Okay. In spiritual warfare, how this relates to you and I is the same thing. If you're a believer, 
okay? So that means you're saved already. But if you're out of fellowship, if you're monkeying around and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, okay, you've broken fellowship, you're unconfessed, unrepentant. And if you call on the Lord to save you physically for anything, whatever it might be, save me from my job collapsing on me, save me from my economic situation, save me from my health issue. If you're out of compliance spiritually, he will not help you physically. That's the way the principle works. So the game that Satan is playing with all of you and me is to get us out of compliance, that we get so out of compliance, we get ourselves in a jam, and we're in a point where we're saying, God help me, and where he knows God won't because you're out of fellowship and unrepentant and unconfessed. That's what he's wanting to do so that you will destroy yourself and you won't be capable of God's intervention physically for you because you're so messed up spiritually speaking. That's how that works. So again, it always comes back to sin, doesn't it, right? It comes back to sin, but he knows you will not get physical deliverance if you get involved in sin. You just won't. Now, once you get out of it, can you expect physical? Yes, you can sometimes, um, but definitely in sin, you're not going to get physically delivered. Now, there's some occasions where, you know, people, uh, God will do a miracle and that's a rare exception, but most of the time, he lets them hit flat on their back because that's the only thing that's going to wake them up sometimes. And so um, you got to be very, very careful. So if you want to fight the spiritual battle correctly, just obey. Just do what you're told to do. And if you make a mistake, you sin, confess it. Repent. Get right back on track immediately. And then you can operate in getting help from God when you do need deliverance. Okay. So that's a key aspect. So that's the key with Israel of how they get physically saved. They spiritually get their house in order. Then it happens. So anyway, any questions so far on that? It opened too many cans of worms or anything like that? Okay. All right. One more thing. He wants her land. He wants her land. I want, I want you to realize how important the land is. You know, Israel, their people are tied to the land, okay? Farmers kind of know this, how you get tied to the land, right? You get tied to your own land. But Israel is really tied to the land. It's a spiritual component because the Lord gave them this area on planet Earth. It is the center of the world, basically. And this is where... Um, the Jews would take it so far out of how precious this land was that uh, if you went into Gentile territory and on a journey or whatever, and you came back into the land of Israel and say, this thing is the border right here. Before you stepped your foot into Israeli soil, you had to first shake the dust off your feet of Gentile territory before you place your foot in Israeli territory. Hence the term, shake the dust off your feet. So in essence, shaking the dust off your feet means I don't want anything to do with anything that would make me impure, impure or would, would uh, 
mess up my relationship with the Lord or be associated with anybody that would dis- would take me away from him. And so I'm shaking the dust off, off my feet metaphorically. I'm leaving the Gentile world because I don't want anything to do with that world. That's the idea of shaking the dust off your feet. And so when Jesus told the disciples, shake the dust off your feet that they won't receive you, he says, don't have anything to do with them anymore. That's the idea. Don't have anything. If they're not going to accept it, then they're, they're all fouled up. Shake the dust off your feet and let's move on. Don't waste your time with them. They're messed up. And that's the idea of it had to do with the borders of the land of Israel. Anyway, um, because God gave them, that's why the tribes were so important and your genealogical records were so important in who inherited the land. You know, you had to be from a certain tribe. You had to marry the right tribe. Uh, all that stuff, it was all dictated by the land. Okay, now they don't have it, right? But the land is still precious to them. They don't have the tribes. They they, they exist, but they don't know how. Uh, or no, don't know who, I should say. But the land is very precious to them. Um, and here's what you have to understand. It's called a cosmic battle. And it's about land, Okay. And let me, let me explain this a little bit from Deuteronomy 32. And this is what you need to know about the land. <coughs> it's about sake. The best term is, I would say, sacred space. Let me find that passage if I can. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 32.8, and this is about the cosmic struggle on the land issue, okay? When the Most High divided the inheritance to the nations, now when did he do that? When did God divide the nations? Tower of Babel, okay? So that's what Deuteronomy is referring to, or Moses is referring to. So when the Most High, El Elyon, divided the inheritance to the nation. Now, there's a reason he's using El Elyon in the passage, because El Elyon means he's the Most High of the Elohims. And he's referring to the lower Elohims, not gods, but spirit creatures that he created called fallen angels, okay? Or, or angels themselves. They, they're called Elohims as well. When he separated the sons of Adam and he, he set the boundaries of the peoples, again, he divided the nation and he wants nations, okay? According, and, and this is a wrong translation, according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, that's impossible. Let me ask you this. This is why we know it's a mistranslation and, the, and I think it's the, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually provide a very good interpretation. Did Israel exist during the Tower of Babel? No. So I don't know why it says the the nations were divided according to the children of Israel. That's not what it says when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It doesn't say that because Israel didn't exist as a nation. But do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed? And I think it's in the uh, Septuagint now. I think. I'm not sure. Anyway, it says... He divided the nations according to the Banacha Elohim, according to the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God in the Old Testament? It's angels. Okay? What you'll find out 
is these are not good angels, these are bad angels that fell. They divided the nations to them according to the territories. Now, um, but look at verse 9. For the Lord's portion, the land, right, is his people, and Jacob is the place of his inheritance. At that point, God declares, that's mine. That piece of land on planet Earth is mine, and I'm going to give it to Jacob. It's going to be Israel's. So at that point, that's when the battle for territory began. So the nations were divided according to the Banacha Elohim, which came upon the daughters of men. So these wicked nations that rebelled against God, he gave them what they, he want, they wanted. You want to follow fallen angels? Then fine, I will disperse you and then you're, you will serve that fallen angel in these different territories. But I will start a new nation now because the 70 nations went south. I will start a brand new nation that will try to retrieve you guys back. So I'm going to start it in this area of the world. And I'm going to start with Abraham later on. And it's going to be here is where redemption will happen. Once God designated that cosmic area on planet Earth, Satan has wanted it ever since. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.